This audio is from the Axis Church and is from our sermon series, The Gospel of Matthew, Following the Unexpected King. For more information about the Axis Church or its mission in Nashville, Tennessee, go to theaxischurch.org. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to set some context for where we're coming from here in the text. And, uh, and then I believe you're going to be encouraged as you uh, look at Jesus today. That's my prayer. So let's, let's pray this together. Jesus, um, Lord, thank you for this opportunity and this, um, man, this, this marvelous grace that we all get to experience today as we open up your word and teach from it and learn from it. Lord, would you open our eyes so that we truly see you for who you rightly are? And would we have eyes to see who we really are in, in the big epic sense of, of, the, of not knowing who we are? Would you let us see truly who we are? And Lord, would, would we have ears to hear your truth? Help us not just sit and tolerate the sermon. Lord, help us engage and, and give it serious consideration and, 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 and speak to much deeper than our ear canals. Let it reverberate deep into our, our hearts. So Lord, soften our hearts, open our hearts to receive you, to, to feel you, to experience you, to grow in our belief of who you are. Jesus, please do these things. Would I accurately portray who you are here in this text? And would that captivate our attention and change us. In Christ's name I pray and for your Father's glory. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Matthew chapter 16. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to give a little bit of background uh, again if you're new or haven't been, haven't been around for a couple weeks. So here's the deal. Um, there was this incredible storm um, that the disciples got caught up in and Jesus goes to his disciples, walking on the water, um, he, and Peter, who wants to be just like Jesus, his rabbi, who wants to be just like Jesus, his everything, he says, God, you know, Jesus, can I come out on the water and, and, and walk on the water towards you? And he says, yes, come. And we see how Jesus um, interacts and handles Peter in his disbelief and his lack of faith, how he graciously, tenderly, miraculously pulls him out of the water and walks him back to the boat. And then when they hit the shore, Jesus starts healing hundreds of people from all over the region. And then he's confronted on official business by these Pharisees sent from Jerusalem to interrogate Jesus on why his disciples aren't participating in a particular custom, law, tradition, a man-made law, a man-made tradition that the Pharisees uh, were obedient to. And they were wondering why Jesus, if he was a good rabbi, why wasn't he or his disciples participating in this tradition. So Jesus shifted the conversation from tradition to heart and said it's not keeping man-made laws that, that make you righteous and, and free from defilement. It's an issue of the heart where God operates that frees you from defilement. So then he goes from there and he has a radical dialogue with a, a Gentile, a non-Jew, who was coming to Jesus, this mother was coming to Jesus, asking Jesus, please help my daughter who is being possessed and tormented by this demon. And then Jesus, rather than operating like most Pharisees would, if not all Pharisees would at a moment like that, does not dismiss her because she's a non-Jew, demon-possessed. Clearly, she's defiled. Jesus shatters the taboos here and 
loves her, loves her daughter, heals her daughter, invites them into his kingdom. It's beautiful. And then he goes even further and begins healing a number of diseased people in this non-Jewish territory. Radical. That didn't happen. We can't just read that and think, oh, that's, that's cool. It's, that's good of him to do that. Man, that was crazy for him to do that. The racial barriers that were being crossed and breached and taboos that were being shattered for him being a, a Jewish rabbi doing this sort of stuff. I mean, man, he, the, the mute were, were speaking, the blind were seeing, the lame were walking, the crippled were healthy. This was wonderful. And then instead of dismissing them after following him for three days, he didn't want them to go away hungry because they had been without food now for several meals. Jesus goes even further and offers radical grace through his compassion and miraculously provides a meal for 4,000 men, not counting the women and children. So anywhere between 12 and, and 18,000 people, he begins to feed and allows his disciples to serve these Canaanites, these Gentiles um, in this Decapolis region, this Greek area um, of town on the non-Jewish side of the lake of the Sea of Galilee. Then Jesus, you see in the very last verse of chapter 15, if you do have your Bible there, you'll see that Jesus then went to Magadan. It's a Jewish territory, and the disciples are left there. The disciples are left in the Decapolis. He, they don't follow until later, which we're going to pick that up in today's uh, scripture reading, uh, today's sermon. So that's the context. I hope that kind of offers a little bit of, of kind of like parameters for where we're coming from uh, in the storyline of Matthew. So let's get busy in chapter 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Pharisees and Sadducees, they came to Jesus. Now, there's a little bit more here in the original Greek language that you see here. It's not just to arrive. They didn't just arrive at Jesus, but they approached him with questioning, all right? So they're coming on, their, their terms are to interrogate. They're on a mission interrogating Jesus to test him. And even that word test means more to in hopes of failing or discrediting, not in hoping that someone succeeds. It's the way I viewed every test in school. All right, I didn't feel like my teachers were wanting me to get it right and succeed. I feel like they were giving it to me to prove I didn't know it, right? Which if you're a teacher, you know that that's not true. You want your kids to do well. These guys did not have that heart. They were wanting to discredit, disprove Jesus. And so they come to him asking him to show them a sign. So this is official business. The theological views of uh, these two religious groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their views were drastically different, incredibly different on a number of different things. But here, they're uniting around a cause. They're putting aside their differences, and they are operating on official business together as they're both, they're two parties who make up the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, all right? So together, they're coming together in order to catch Jesus, in order to discredit, disprove Jesus. And so they come asking him for a sign. I find it interesting to see their skepticism already at work here, just one verse in, compared, contrasted to that of the Gentiles' belief and awe of who Jesus was on the other side of the lake. I just think this is interesting contrast. Look at verse 2. So they come for a sign, and Jesus answers them, 
When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, it's beautiful, it's a, it's, it's a sunset, it's gorgeous. And in the morning, you say it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot, literally, you're not able to interpret the signs of the times. This is where the cliche uh, comes from that says, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. Perhaps you've heard about that. It originated here. Shakespeare, I think, picked it up later, but this is where it originated from. It's as if Jesus is saying, even if I performed a miracle right now, you wouldn't interpret it the way that you should. You wouldn't view it for what it is. You wouldn't receive it the way it's intended to be given. You wouldn't see the miracle, the sign, and believe me, or my message, the gospel. You know, most likely these guys, the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, I mean, take the whole Sanhedrin, take the whole lump of all the Jewish leaders that they were commissioned by. So these particular guys, they've probably seen and heard account of and witnessed thousands of miracles, hundreds of signs that Jesus performed in his ministry. Certainly they've seen people who had no legs walking because Jesus touched them. They they don't need another sign. They need to be able to see who Jesus really is, not just another miracle. They needed the Spirit to work in their hearts, yet they're so proud, they're too proud to admit that they need help from anyone for anything because they feel like they have arrived. They feel like they are now morally superior to everyone else, and if everyone just be like them, then the world will be okay. And uh, we're probably thinking about certain individuals or institutions, even when we say this sort of thing um, in the church today. No sign could convince their hearts. Only God could do this through his spirit. And let's, let's see what happens. We're, we're going to learn this. Look in verse 4. Jesus continues in teaching them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. In other words, the only sign... The only other sign that these religious leaders will get is the one that will happen following the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Jesus likens it to Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, in the darkness of the deep waters, but after three days he comes out alive, so it will be with Jesus who will suffer three days in the darkness of death in the tomb but then live. That's the only sign that Jesus is saying that they'll see. They might see other ones. They might hear of other ones between now and that moment. But Jesus is saying, this is going to be the one that you will see that you cannot ignore, that you will have to speak to. You can't just pass it by as something that's just hearsay. It's going to look you in the face and you're going to have to give reason and answer for who I am. That sign will be given to you. The exact one of Jonah Look at verse 5. When the disciples reach the other side, so now they kind of, they follow up and they they meet up with Jesus. They had forgotten to give any bread. 
All right, so I see this as a footnote. That's the way I understand this, is this isn't really adding a lot to the, to the moment in, in the live act, but it's given for us so that we kind of get, by the way, as you read forward, know that the disciples, they don't have bread with them. All right? Verse 6, Jesus said to them, he says to the disciples, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Watch and beware, literally watch and beware of the evasive spreading, infiltrating of the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see, the skepticism and the disbelief that the Pharisees and Sadducees brought to the person and message and gospel of Jesus, Jesus was was steering his disciples away from. He was trying to protect them as they interacted with the Pharisees and Sadducees. He didn't stay, stay away from it as much as he's saying, just watch and beware, filter it, it's dangerous. Which, this speaks to false prophets. This is essentially Jesus calling out these false teachers as heretics, as people who are not speaking the truth or believing the truth about who Jesus is. There, there are modern-day Sadducees and Pharisees, Sanhedrins, who propagate from Scripture and using theology and theological terms that we would agree on. They use it for certain other agendas, and they mislead people. Even Jesus calling the Pharisees um, terrible guides, like leading people astray. They're misguided so I think we all need to, to hear this warning to beware and watch and, and, and be in tune with who Jesus is so that we will not be misled. And even here is the church, as far as the preaching ministry and as far as what we present to you on, on any typical gathering, whether it be a large gathering on a Sunday or scattering throughout the week, this is why we make much of Jesus. Because we are certain about who Jesus is. We can bank our lives on who Jesus is. We don't make much to do about other secondary or tertiary issues. We, we, we teach them in, in honesty. But one thing we want you to know is who Jesus is. We want you to know that, that Jesus came to, to live and die and suffer for us. And he beat death so that those who hope in him and his finished work would also no longer be held to death, but will be freed to life now and forever. And we want that to be what is continually preached and sung over and over and over, because that is what we know for certain. How things started and how things are going to end and a lot of the things in between, we have ideas, but what we want to preach and proclaim consistently is Jesus and him crucified, risen, and coming again, all right? This is what we want so badly for us not to miss. Verse seven. So, all right, sorry, a little side note here. Okay, so, so Jesus just says, watch and beware of the leaven for the, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we got no bread. Like, oh, no. Again, this is, we have to carry bread with us, y'all. He asks for it all the time. <laughs> like, we've got to learn this lesson, right? 
And Jesus, aware of this, says, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? So clearly the disciples aren't on the same page here, all right? They hear leaven and they think, oh, we didn't bring any bread, oh no, like... What were we thinking? We had seven, ba- seven baskets left over and you didn't get one? Like you didn't, you have, what are we going to do? That's just where they're, they're talking, they're discussing, they're, they're like, they're probably looking at the one guy who's, it was his idea that said, let's just leave it for everybody. And they're like, oh, we shouldn't have left it all. <laughs> you know, it's like, who knows what's, what's really going on here. But two things we do know is Jesus isn't talking about literal leaven or bread. And the other thing is that the disciples should know now, by this point, not to worry about bread. They should know by now that Jesus can make bread, that he is an amazing baker on the spot. He needs no time. He needs no ingredients. And he can just make it happen. Yet here, they revert back to this faithlessness, oh, you have little faith about Jesus being able to make bread They've seen him do it at least two other massive times. 5,000 men, 4,000 men, 12 baskets left over, 7 baskets left over, 20,000 people, 15-ish thousand people. Like He can do this, but here they're missing the point. And it's like Jesus is telling them this. Jesus is essentially saying, guys, you're missing the point. You're asking the wrong questions. And by the way, stop limiting me when it comes to bread. Like, have some faith, guys. Like, I can do this. You're not going to go hungry. All right? And so he essentially says all that in these next verses, which we'll read together. Look in verse 9. Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven. Uh, He's quoting himself. He's restating his exact sentence earlier. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then one of my favorite moments in Matthew, I admit right here, because I see myself as a hard-headed guy, a lot like the disciples, and this gives me hope. Look at this right here. Look at these next few words that we have. If you've been with us, you know this is remarkable. This is like, you should probably circle this exclamation mark, smiley face. Then they understood. I love that. Like the disciples get it. Like they finally get what Jesus is talking about. 16 chapters in and we finally get to read these words. They understood. Yes. And they did not tell, that he did not tell them. They understood that he did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees. Ha, ha, we got it. Jesus can provide bread. Don't worry about the bread. Be concerned with the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Don't worry about the bread. Worry about the Pharisees teaching and the Sadducees teaching. The religious leaders, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's permeating like leaven, and it's very dangerous. That was the point that Jesus was making. So the Pharisees, man, they have all kind of misconceptions about who Jesus is. The Sadducees have a number of wrong, misinformed 
ideas about who Jesus is. The word on the street is varied from, from one extreme to the other. And so Jesus brings this question to bear on who he is. Look in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he's bringing his men along with him, he stops and he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Speaking of himself, it's the Son of Man, it's the term that he uses. Who do people say that I am? Who do others say that I am? What's the word on the street regarding me? What have you heard? Let's bring out some ideas. Verse 14. And they said, well, we have heard that, that you're John the Baptist. Like, that's something we've heard, and a lot of people are believing in that. Like, they just see you as John. Okay, what else? Well, others said that you're Elijah. Man, I mean, he was such a radical prophet in the Old Testament. Like, a lot of people see you as that figure of that, that major prophet in the Old Testament. And then others think that you're Jeremiah sympathetically lamenting and, and, and being compassionate and praying for people like they see you as someone like him. And then others, man, there's so many different prophets. There's, I mean, you, you name it and you've been, you've been likened to them. And, you know, and honestly, some people aren't even comparing you anymore. They just think that you are a prophet, that you are a prophet of God and that's it. You're just one of the ones that's been sent to us. Verse 15 he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, wait, the way that this is written, all right, in the original Greek language, the emphasis here, if you were to write this in an email or text message, you would want to bold and all caps the word you. Probably italicize it, make it as emphasized as you possibly could. The way that it's given to us is, who do you say that I am? Here we have the pinnacle of the first part of the book of Matthew. We're halfway into chapter 16, and we have the moment that Matthew has been writing for up until this point. Magnificent things have been written about, told about, in order for us to get to this place. This is what Matthew is wanting us to see. We've seen many different reactions to the authoritative ministry of Jesus. Here, Jesus is giving a point-blank question to his disciples, as this is the most superior question that's ever been given to humanity. This is the most important question that a person could ever consider. This is the most significant question that you could ever be asked, and it's right here, and Jesus is recorded as asking it himself. We can determine weather. We can predict forecast days in advance. Yet there is a storm coming. There's a storm coming and it cannot be predicted. And there's a 100% chance of the full wrath of God raining down on all sin. You can't predict it. You can't run from it. There is no adequate shelter from this coming judgment of God on sinful humanity. And we are all sinners. We are all unrighteous before God. None of us is good enough or fit for heaven in our current state outside of grace. 
There is no adequate shelter that we could ever run to to find protection in the storm. I see this as Matthew's point here in chapter 16. He's giving us all of this, wrapping it up, though it's different accounts, different times. One's in Decapolis, one's in Magadan, one's in Caesarea Philippi, some's with the religious leaders, others with the disciples. And Matthew's wanting to get us to this point in this chapter to where we realize judgment is going to rain down and we are in need of a shelter and there is no shelter that we have on our own. Nothing we can pull together is sufficient. We can teamwork it and have positive thoughts, but there's nothing that's going to be able to endure the coming storm of the wrath of God, except God himself. God, through grace, could offer us a shelter, but it would require him giving of himself to do so. Let's read on. Who do you say that I am? In verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now this is the first time the word Christ has been used in Matthew as identifying Jesus. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are Christ, Christ, Messiah, synonymous terms in most ways. You are Christ. You are the one the Old Testament has been pointing towards. You are the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. You are the one we've been waiting for. Advent now is over. Our Savior has arrived. He's here, and it's you. You've come to live perfectly for us. You've come to be our substitute in death. You've come to make things new. This is huge. This is magnificent. This is radical right here in front of us. And Jesus is here. And, and Peter is speaking radical faith here and truth here back to Jesus about the identity of Jesus. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus is God. He's God in human flesh. He's been sent to rescue, sent to be the needed shelter between the wrath of God and sinful humanity. It's Jesus. It's his purpose. And we just sang about... Um, you're the double cure, saved from wrath, and you've made me pure. Like he has, He's endured the storm for us. He's bore the wrath of God that's due to us in our sin. He's taken it. Not only that, doubly cured, we have been made pure in the eyes of God. So our punishment is given on Jesus and not us. His perfection is given to us. So he's our representative in his life, and he's our substitute in his death. This is what Jesus came to do. And Jesus answered Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. It's like a family name. In his home, it will be very familiar. It's the equivalent of blessed are you, Jeremy Paul Rose. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh, Peter, blessed are you. You know why? He tells us. You are blessed because you didn't come up with this idea on your own. This isn't something that you arrived at intellectually on your own. You're blessed because God himself 
went to work for you, in you, to make you see this and believe this. You're blessed. Peter understood what scholars and students and professional religious leaders, they didn't know or understand. I believe the difference is the spirit that revealed it to Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The Spirit is the one who reveals these truths to our hearts. And I believe it's a teaching of Scripture that without the Spirit's activity, without His work in our hearts, we would never arrive here on our own, through our own intellect. I don't think it would happen. The mind isn't what needs to be informed nearly as much as the heart that needs to be transformed. Where it's, it's opened up to the epic reality of us being sinners. Where, where we become fully aware that I am a sinner and my sin deserves punishment and I'm in trouble because there's nothing I can do to withstand the coming storm of judgment. I, I need help. I need, I need protection. And then we see that Jesus comes in and gives us this shelter, provides for us, as we sang earlier, the cleft in the rock that we can hide in so we can endure the storm so that we can now know God as Father and God as friend. This is a work through his grace brought about by the spirit in our lives. This is why over and over and over it says to him be glory alone forever and ever. It's a radical gift of faith that we have to see Jesus for who he is. I mean, we can sit here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and we can hear sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. But unless God reveals himself to you, you will miss him. My prayer is that you would cry out to, to God the Father, that he would, through his spirit, move in your heart, that you would seek him, that you would pray for eyes to see. This is why I pray nearly every single Sunday. It's not out of habit or tradition as much as it is out of desperation, knowing the reality of how things work. I pray that the Holy Spirit moves to open our eyes to let us truly see, open our ears to let us clearly hear, open our hearts so that we feel and experience and believe Jesus more because that is a work of God it's by grace that you're saved through faith and it's a gift it's not through your work that gets you there it's a gift of God from Ephesians chapter 2 I mean Pastor Jacob prayed it even at the beginning of our, of our, of our service today of our gathering today we can know that a literal storm is coming we can be unaware that judgment is coming. A day of reckoning is approaching. And without Jesus, you're not prepared. Without Christ, you're not ready. You will not be able to endure the coming judgment that is forecasted all throughout Scripture. The only shelter that's going to enable you to last the coming storm of God's judgment, his just judgment, his righteous judgment. The only way that you'll be able to survive is being united together with Christ in a beautiful union of grace where you see him as Messiah and believe in his finished work and yes, that he is the son of the living God. So my question to you today is, do you know Jesus? Do you, do you know him? Who do you say that Jesus is? 
Jesus consistently spoke of himself as the fulfillment of the law and not a mere teacher to it, not a mere prophet. He spoke as one who, who, who spoke as if all of humanity would one day stand before him. He wasn't going to be in the crowd of people standing before God. The crowd of people will be standing before him. He spoke as one who knew the hearts of all men and women. He spoke as not, uh, as not of one person who was away to heaven, but he spoke as if he was the way to heaven, the way to God. He taught this. He spoke this way. He spoke as one who knew the future. He spoke with such clarity and confidence. He spoke with such power and poise and precision. He spoke the word of God as if he were its author. Because he was. He said that you must hear and be obedient to his words and teaching in order to find life. And that apart from him, you would die and not have life. He taught this. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they merely talked about the law and discussed the law. Jesus went further and said that he came to fulfill the law and to complete the law once and for all. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the author of mankind. This is who Jesus is. So you take all this and you consider, man, his distinct claims of being God, they have to eliminate the popular strategy or tactic of anyone who wants to limit Jesus to being a good moral man or a revolutionary throughout our history. You can't take Jesus' claims and think, well, he's just a good teacher, he's a prophet, he's like so-and-so, he had a lot of cool things. He, many, several times he would just give us some good fortune cookie writings. Like that's, that's who Jesus was. I don't think you can see Jesus and get there. So often that conclusion is passed off as the only one acceptable to scholars. But I see that it's, it's might be considered by a lot of scholars, but I find it irrational to take what Jesus said it is irrational to find that he's merely a good teacher. This first resonated with me when I read a particular quote from C.S. Lewis, um, professor at, at Cambridge University. He was an agnostic until he was saved and changed by the grace of Jesus and the grace of God through Jesus. And he ended up writing uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and a lot of other things, screw tape letters, and four loves. It's fantastic. If C.S. Lewis, read his stuff. But anyway, here's a quote that he said in regards to this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. This is the quote. I'm, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis continues, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who said that he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. 
Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He did not leave room for us to consider him a good teacher. He's God, or he's a liar, or he's crazy. It's been brought down to three terms. I've heard it brought down to reduce this quote, reduce to three words, that Jesus was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. If he was a liar, he intentionally manipulated people to believe something that wasn't true. But then he died for those claims, which I find that highly irrational of someone who was as brilliant and smart as Jesus. I mean, even, even skeptics and, and historians don't write of him as, as, as being someone who was that fanatic of being able to die for something that wasn't true. I mean, it's hard to find people like that in general. Or he was crazy. He was a lunatic. Jesus was outside of his mind, unintentionally leading people astray. But if you study first century, if you study anyone, skeptics alike, writers, historians, followers, whatever, if you study that well, I don't believe there was a single person that would ever look at Jesus in his time on earth and think he's crazy. He's out of his mind. He's speaking of things he doesn't know. He is absolutely gone nuts. He's a whack job. I think everyone would consider, you don't commission people on official business if they're simply crazy. You ignore them. But the authorities could not ignore Jesus. But that's an option. He could just be crazy. He could be a liar. He could be crazy. Or he could be Lord. Personally, I cannot say that he's a liar or lunatic. I do see him as Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who came from the Father of the Father to live and die for us. That like Peter said, this is who he is. Certainly there's possibilities, but I see the one is much more probable is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is God, and building your life on him and on his finished work is a foundation that will not disappoint you. It is sure. I believe that it stood the test of time and critic. I believe that who Jesus is is reality that is not a waste of our time to, to, to research, to dig, to process, to pray for, and to study. I believe it's worth every second we give to consider it. Jesus Christ has come to you to rescue you from the storm, the coming storm of his judgment. And he's here to offer you true everlasting hope in God, established on himself, the rock, Jesus Christ. So you must decide. I believe there's only two decisions available to us. To follow him in obedience because he's God or to dismiss him, reject him, and continue on your way, which is a decision. So all of us will be leaving today exercising a radical amount of belief and faith in something. You either believe Jesus is Lord or you believe that he's crazy or a liar. But it's radical faith in all of those. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? My prayer is that you would seek the Spirit, ask the Spirit to move in your heart, to continue to reveal the truth of Jesus to who you are, to your heart, 
that it would transform you and change you, and that you would daily continue asking the question of who is Jesus. I was talking to my wife after the last service, and I was like, you know, when we get in arguments, when we don't see eye to eye, it's an important practice that we need to start where we take a step back, and instead of saying, what do I deserve here in this argument, step back and say, who's Jesus? And well, who's he say that I am? And what has he done for us? Let's keep things big. Let's look, at, let's look at the hope that we have there rather than just trying to get at something that I deserve. Let this truth speak into something very practical as a marital disagreement. It matters, not just cosmically, eternally. It matters minute by minute of who Jesus is. Are you serving yourself as Lord? And so you're disappointed when, no one, when people don't treat you the way that you deserve? Because you, you honestly are practicing belief that you deserve people to appreciate you, worship you, applaud you. And when they don't, when they pull out in front of you, clearly they don't know who you are. You're not understanding who Jesus is and who you are as a recipient of his work. So it's an offering of a perspective even when we take the practice and the principles from this truth today into our daily lives. But those who are without faith today in Christ, my prayer is that you would pray for the Spirit of God to move in your hearts and that he would reveal these things to you and that you would cry out to him for faith and belief. Say, say Lord, I'm, I'm trying to believe, but help my unbelief. Help the areas of, of disbelief. Help my doubts. It's beautiful. Begin pursuing him in Scripture. Begin seeking the Spirit in prayer as we all work a little bit by little bit, day by day, minute by minute, working to believe Jesus a little bit more. Let's believe Jesus for who he is. The Spirit will take us there. Let's, let's seek him. Let's pray for him to work in our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the way that you handled yourself in, in moments like this, Lord, standing for the truth, guiding the disciples, Lord, speaking truth, Lord, thank you for this text that we had today, the opportunity we have to see you and to, to be brought to grips with the question of who you are, not just in our intellect, not just in a, in a theological correct answer, but who our actions say that you are, who our heart feels that you are. Lord, these areas of belief or disbelief, Lord, help us here in these, these places of our heart in regards to who you really are. Lord, help us as a church, collectively, and individuals, help us believe you more, remove limits from our expectations of what you can do, of what's possible, and begin seeing you for who you really are a little bit more, a little bit more clearly each and every day. Spirit, move in, in our hearts and in this church. Lord, thank you for your activity in our lives today. In Christ's name, amen.